This episode of the Cut the Crap Show as part of the Resilience Prescription is brought to you by GetAbstract.com. Now, I know when I first started this podcast, I was putting together mind maps, and so many of you wanted those mind maps. You want them right now. You're saying, Ryan, listen, I love the episodes, but I wish I could have a PDF of the episode, a summary of the episode, and I don't do that anymore. So what I did was I went out there and found a company that does do this. GetAbstract.com has access to 20,000 different books all summarized for your convenience. If you want your free summaries, go to getab, that's G-E-T-A-B dot L-I slash R-R-X. That's getab dot L-I slash R-R-X. And you will get a three-day free trial to go and download your summaries. The summary to today's episode. You can get the summary for today's book on Get Abstract and so many more. If you're interested in learning about business, leadership, sales, marketing, psychology, neuroscience, whatever, finance, go to getabstract.com. They have a whole list of books at your disposal. So if you don't have the time to read, they essentially did what I'm doing and they cut the crap from the books and are giving you the golden nuggets. Now, the difference between myself and Get Abstract is I will bring the author on. They will give you the golden nuggets. They actually work in tandem very nicely. That's why Get Abstract and I have a great partnership and why we get along so well. So again, that's getab.li slash rrx and you can get today's summary with your three-day free membership. If you've already done that, then do yourself a favor and subscribe. It's of great value and as you listen to this show, you can go and pull the summaries from Get Abstract. Again, that's getabstract.com or if you want your three-day free trial, getab.li slash rrx. What's shaking, everybody? Ryan Kalajura here. Thank you so much for joining me on this week's episode of the Cut the Crap Show as part of the Resilience Prescription. It's been a long, long time, hasn't it? Man, it's been so long. I mean, I've been putting out content with Brain Jiu-Jitsu, Create Your Eight. You're seeing some things, but I know what you're thinking. You're saying, come on, Kalajuri, give me some books. Where are the golden nuggets at, baby? Give me those golden nuggets. I know. I know. I hear you. Your man's been busy. Been real busy working on a lot of things. Obviously, Create Your Eight is one of my top priorities. My purpose on this planet is to be a beacon of resilience, optimism, and hope for everybody. And it starts with me. My whole goal is to make sure that I am being a beacon and building beacons around the world. My big, hairy, audacious goal, my purpose, is to create 80 million beacons of resilience, optimism, and hope around the world. Which means I gotta get to training. I gotta train people I got to develop programs. I got to develop online programs. I got to develop speaking engagements because this stuff just does not happen on its own. To build 80 million, that's approximately 1% of the population. And I believe that if I can make 1%, just 1% of the population, a beacon of resilience, optimism, and hope, I can change the world. Change the world for the better. So that's what I've been busy doing. Obviously being sick with COVID and Managing all the businesses and the challenges that come along with that, I've been super busy. But uh, for me to get back to doing Cut the Crap Show, talking to authors, bringing the golden nuggets to you, and we're going to kick this bad boy off by breaking us back into it, giving you more golden nuggets. And this book, we're going to be talking about Mastering Adulthood, Go Beyond Adulting to Become an Emotional Grown-Up by Laura Fielding, Dr. Laura Fielding. Dr. Laura is a psychologist. She specializes in using mindfulness-based therapies to manage stress and other strong negative emotions. She's also a professor in the Graduate School of Education and Psychology at Pepperdine University in California. 
She's a great woman. I absolutely love this woman. She's very well spoken. She uses a lot of metaphors to help uh, describe very complicated, complex ideas. And I'm going to get her back on the show only because we just started to dig deep on this. After we got off the episode, we started talking about different ways that we can collaborate together. So I'll definitely be bringing her back. If not on the Cut the Crap show, I'll be bringing her on to uh, Brain Jiu-Jitsu or on uh, Create Your Aid to facilitate more of a free-flowing discussion about different tactics we can use to help you manage your stress and help you build resilience in this very crazy, crazy world we live in. But in any case, enough jibber-jabber. Let's break right into this. Again, this is Mastering Adulthood. Go Beyond Adulting to Become an Emotional Grown-Up by Dr. Laura Fielding. I'll catch you back here at the end of the episode. Enjoy. What's going on, everybody? Thank you so much for joining us on this week's episode of the Cut the Crap Show as part of the Resilience Prescription. I'm very excited today to bring you our guest, Dr. Laura Fielding. She's the author of Mastering Adulthood, Go Beyond Adulting to Become an Emotional Grown-Up. Dr. Laura, how are you doing today? I'm well, I'm well. Thank you for having me. As we were talking about beforehand, you and I, we share a very similar purpose. And when you get people who believe in the same type of purpose, who share a similar purpose. Um, we get good conversations flowing, and I know that we're going to have a great conversation today, and I hope that those listening, all of you out there in Cut the Crap Podcast Nation listening, I hope that you're able to learn something from this interview and hopefully take something from this to make your life better because, again, that's our purpose, and that's what we're trying to do here today. Uh, but before we really kick into things, Dr. Laura, maybe tell us a little bit about who you are what you do, and why you wrote this book in the first place. I am a clinical psychologist in private practice and an author and a speaker. Um, and I specialize in the mindfulness-based cognitive behavioral therapies. I really developed an interest in what we can do with our hands and feet and voices every day to promote our resilience to stress. So I actually became a psychologist because when I was a young adult, I looked around me and watched my family and friends and people I loved and cared about making choices that seemed not so helpful for their ultimate men mental health and well-being. And I started wondering, why, why are people making these choices? Why does stress impact some people so that they start to falter and some people thrive? So I started reading every self-help book I could get my hands on, first of all. I was actually a high school dropout, so mm. I was sort of terrified, like, I don't know how I'm going to do. I don't know what I'm going to do because I... I'm a high school dropout, and I thought I was stupid. Um, so I just started reading all these books to sort of feed my mind and, and learn what I could learn. And then one day I went back to school to, to actually to community college, Santa Monica Community College, to see if there was maybe a couple of classes I could take or something. And they said it was okay. I could enroll even though I was a high school dropout. And I started taking some Psych 101 and became very interested in psychobiology of stress and studied the, the underlining or underpinning um, biological factors that influence our mental health and how our health behavior, specifically exercise, meditation, nutrition, things like that, could make us more resilient. And then as I progressed from undergrad to my master's program where I st studied psychophysiology of stress at Harvard, and then ultimately my doctoral program, I learned these mindfulness interventions and how we can really use the wisdom of our body to inform our mind. That is the short, long story short. And I did it because I couldn't help people in my life. And now when I am, I always say helping is like chocolate for me. If I've helped you deconstruct a problem and solve it and, and make it manageable and find tools in your own life that can make you stronger and more resilient to the stress we all experience at some point, then uh, that's super rewarding for me. 
I love your story because you go from dropping out to finding a passion and going so deep in it where you're a doctor, you're an author, you're a speaker, but that's what happens. And for anyone out there who's sitting there, a little bit of a tangent, but it's a really important thing to realize that you don't have to have it all figured out. There's so many people who listen to this show who are 18, 19, 20, 30, 40 years old, and they're saying, I don't know what my purpose is, Ryan. People who go through the program, they struggle to find their purpose. Listen, you might not know it, but don't try to rush it. Don't try to force it. Explore. Be curious. What ignites Mm. fire inside you? And as you get that little spark going, add a little bit of kindling, do some reading, do some research, talk to people in that field, learn more, be hungry, be a sponge for information. I, it, it's been helpful for lots of people that I speak to when they're, you know, 27, 30, 35, and they're like, I don't know, and you're doing all these things. And, they, and then we make comparisons based on where people are and we don't know their history. And so when people hear that, I actually didn't even go back to school until I was 33. Wow. So, uh, so I was a high school dropout until 33. And I think that it will be fun to talk today a little bit about what gets in the way of knowing our purpose. Mm. Um, and I think that's the counterintuitive part of the book. Uh, and, and I don't know if, I can, if you wanna jump right into that, but I think there is something that is key that can get in the way of finding your purpose. Let's, let's talk about it. I wanna hear it now. I'm curious. <laughs> <laughs> So, you know, uh, in my work, in the book, and in, in, in my trainings, I teach people how to work skillfully with emotions, with stress and strong emotions. And people automatically think that means I'm going to teach you how to control your emotions. But the fact of the matter is emotions have a really essential purpose in our animal bodies, right? The most obvious is that, you know, if there's an emotion of fear, that means run away because you're in danger. But all of our emotions have important specific messages about what we care about. So we hurt where we care, we care where we hurt. And if we are so invested in not hurting, then it's also going to be very difficult to find what we care about. Our emotions hurt, right? So no one complains, oh, I have just too much damn joy in my life, right? <laughs> or enthusiasm. We, we don't like those, we don't like sadness. We don't like anxiety. We don't like shame. We don't like those painful, difficult emotions. And like all animals, we will do what is necessary to avoid control or try to suppress those emotions. So Mm. in a way, our our behavior is not only dictated by what we want, it's largely dictated by what we don't want. Mm. So when we are invested in not feeling any shame, so the old, I don't want to fail in front of people, right? And now we know failing forward is really a big key to success. If we're unwilling to risk the anxiety, I completely still get speaker's anxiety and it takes me a couple of minutes to sort of settle down, but I keep doing it because of my purpose. So when I say we hurt where we care, we care where we hurt, or if we are suppressing and controlling our emotions, we can't know what lights us up. You simply can't, our system doesn't work in a way that you can say, yeah, I'm not going to do shame, anxiety, or sadness, but I want tons of inspiration, joy, and enthusiasm. So you numb one, you numb them all. We are just a cocktail of emotions and feelings And they can flow through us so quickly. They can change in an instant. And I think that as we develop greater self-awareness, which we will talk about later on in the interview today, as we develop greater self-awareness, we understand that we can better understand these, these emotions and dance with them. And it's not so much trying to suppress them, but to understand them and, and, and understand the reasons why we feel it and be compassionate for ourselves and say, "Oh, oh, I know why I feel this. It's a part of being a human. 
And when you understand it, then you can better control it. We will never fully control it. But like I said, Seth Godin actually mentioned this when he was talking about the lizard brain and the amygdala and fear response. And he, he mentioned this in our interview and I love it and I will always use this. So I can't take credit for it. It's Seth Godin. He says, we can't control it, but we can learn to dance with it. And that was such a beautiful thing. Because mm -hmm. as you know, as I know, whenever we deal, as everyone knows, as we deal with anxieties and fears and, you know, I still get the butterflies in my stomach when I go up and speak, but I'm able to dance with those butterflies now and they no longer right. really control me. Well, what you're describing in that dance is the uh, primary underlying theory of my book, my work, and all of the mindfulness-based cognitive behavioral therapies, which are the sort of more recent wave of cognitive behavioral therapy that started in the 60s, but it's really the evolved gold standard of treatments for anxiety and depression and things like that. So what you're describing in that dance sounds to me a lot like balance, finding the balance between sometimes you have to ch make change and sometimes you have to accept, right? And that can be making change in your environment, changing how you feel, changing how you're thinking, but, but also balancing that with an acceptance that sometimes you are just feeling the way you're feeling. Sometimes a situation can't be changed. And that what you're describing is psychological flexibility, which is sort of the, the mountaintop if you will, of what all skillfulness is aimed at. That ability to move in and out of your experience without rigidly having to control it or letting go entirely. And it's, I'm, I'm glad that we started off by talking a little bit about purpose because people who listen to this show do discover and they think about and they act on their purpose and sometimes it's not their purpose and so they shift gears. And this, as we become adults, it really talks about our importance to be flexible and change, which is actually, we'll call that golden nugget number one, and we'll break this into golden nugget number two. And this comes directly from your book. Again, the book is Go Beyond Adulting to Become an Emotional Grown-Up. So becoming an adult, it's challenging. It's difficult. It's tough. <laughs> so it really calls on all of our ability to cope flexibly with change. And today in 2020, where people are saying, 2020, we're going to have a clear vision for what this year is going to be. It's been nothing but a whole bunch of change and requires us to cope with flexibility. So talk mm. to us a little bit more about flexibility and change as we become adults. Developing flexibility is, is, is something that we have to actively work on because humans are actually habitual beings, right? We, we learn very quickly that I don't have to consciously think about as I put one pant leg on at, at a time. I don't have to think about when I'm making my coffee or brushing my teeth, that there are these things that we can do in an automated way, which is very efficient for humans, because that means we can clear our minds up to be more creative and, and develop our purpose and have this be sort of higher cognitive and spiritual and emotional goals in our life. So our habitual ways are very helpful. Um, our habits become entrained or um, sort of calcified if you will, when we do something over and over over time and it leads to a reward or a decrease in discomfort. The problem is that much like if you're driving on, on the highway and you've put your car into autopilot and now suddenly you have, you're forced off the highway, if you're not aware enough to recognize when you're in autopilot and when you're fully present, then you're not gonna be as effective. So your car going 80 miles an hour might be effective when you're driving from LA to Palm Springs, but it's not so effective when now you've hit the surface streets and there are lots of little things that have to be attended to. So um, becoming psychologically flexible is um, inherent in mindfulness. Um, and we've 
uh, psychologists have broken down m multiple components of it, but the idea of psychological flexibility is that you are responding adaptively to an ever-changing environment rather than reactively based on what you've learned from your past experience that became sort of unconscious rules and habits about, oh, when I do this, it should be like that. Does that mm -hmm. make sense? Absolutely. Here's a question for you that a lot of people have been asking, especially in 2020 where we're facing so many different challenges. When the human organism, what we are, we are amazing at adapting. We are great at adapting. Adapting is, seems to be innate in all of us. However, adapting negatively and adapting positively is what essentially determines the outcome of our lives. And I would argue that adopting in the name of resilience is adopting positively. For example, if we adapt to COVID-19 by being, becoming more fearful, becoming more anxious, um, getting extremely overwhelmed by our circumstances, and so as a result, we sort of go inside our house, go inside of our mind, and we don't go outwards. Would you consider that not a very good example of adapting? And how would you help somebody who is adapting maybe, maybe not as well to change and they're not being very flexible with the circumstances that are being driven on them right now? Well, the, so inherent in your question was uh, what's good, what's bad, right? And so whether it's a client coming to me or a group of people, the good, bad judgment in terms of the way uh, mindfulness practitioners uh, approach it is that 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 judgment is made based on, is it leading you towards your values or your purpose, right? So, and values might take a hierarchical, uh, you might have two opposing values, but one's more important right now. So if you are low immunities, then staying home might be a darn good idea. And then finding other ways to, to work in the community digitally, et cetera. So the good, bad, right, wrong answer is, is it working to keep you on track in the service of what's important in your life? I like that example right there where you use your values, your belief system, your purpose as your mm -hmm. true north, as your guiding yeah. light, as the direction that you should be heading in. And that really increases the need to understand what do you believe in? What are your values? What is yeah. your purpose? And these are great questions that we need to be asking ourselves on a regular basis because it will help our decision-making process and I do believe that it, it makes the decision making. I'm oh, sorry, got oh. excited. Um, it, that's exactly it. It's the true north. It's like if you're in the car, am I driving the right way? Well, you won't know unless you've got that GPS part pointed in the right direction. Right. And this goes back to why doing the work of introspection and checking in with yourself. And and sometimes it won't for some people. Um, and we'll just we'll talk. I'm sure about the overregulators versus the underregulators. Knowing that purpose can be extra difficult. You know, I work with my husband on this on a day-to-day -day basis because he's an overregulator. Um, you know, it's been very hard for him to really connect with what do I think is really important if it's like beyond money, beyond, you know, social praise, what do I believe? Um, so yeah, without that knowledge, it's, you know, your decisions are more automated because you're just doing what feels good now versus um, what's uncomfortable.
And hey, anytime you get a jolt of passion or excitement, you want to interrupt me, you tell me to shut the hell up and you go on, Laura. This is all your show. <laughs> it can happen. I promise you. <laughs> Excellent. I look forward to it then. So you did mention the under-regulation and the over-regulation. So again, this comes straight from your book where people tend, and this is gold nugget number three for people following along, people tend to under-regulate when they feel anxiety, when they feel panic, when they feel despondent, and we tend to over-regulate when we feel a lack of motivation. So this is really a conversation about, about habits and how they can either help us or hurt us, correct? Yes, exactly. And so I would just, uh, you know, the over-regulation with lack of motivation and the under-regulation coming together with panic, despondency, despair, um, we don't know what comes first, the chicken or the egg, right? It's just those two kind of hang out together. So um, I would argue that it's the overregulation that leads to the lack of motivation and it's the underregulation that leads to the panic, right? So um, if one is feeling too much anxiety, too much sadness, too much, there's also something that happens in that space that the, the that's what I call an underregulator or a village person because the, each side has its strengths, by the way. Um, underregulators tend to be the creatives, the passionate ones, the connectors, you're a people, the people people. Um, mm. And they thrive through strong connections and deep conversations. Those are our sort of village people. And then the castle people or the overregulators tend to be great leaders excellent at executing stuff, getting stuff done, giving um, instructions on how to get it done, and they really get people to follow them. So there are times when it's great to be an overregulator when you're in a place of leadership, when there's a crisis. It's actually very helpful to be more like a castle person. Village people are gonna be more creative, they're gonna be better friends and more, although they can have a lot of turmoil with their friends because they have hurt feelings easily. Um, so, what happens in each, but each is not maximizing their psychological flexibility. The castle person can become super rigid um, because they're so invested in not feeling the discomfort that, that comes with being a human being. Um, they can also be kind of judgmental about people who do have strong emotions. And, and so they're invalidating to the village people. Now, here's the funny thing. These people tend to hook up a lot. <laughs> so villagers tend to be attracted to castle people like wow how do you keep it all under wraps like that and village and castle people are like oh great she wants everything i want because she's so go along to get along this is perfect um and then they end up in my office um when that stuff's working <laughs> so you, you've been mentioned um, before for yeah, people yeah. who maybe haven't followed along or people who haven't read your book yet you're talking about a metaphor that was explained very clearly. And I, I love the usage of metaphors and use another metaphor that we'll talk about a little later on. But this idea of the uh, castle and the villagers, maybe give us, take a step back and give us a quick example in terms of like how you came to that and, and why you're using that as a way to describe uh, over-regulators and under-regulators. Uh, yes, thank you for bringing me back to that. Uh, I came to that, actually, it's a very funny story. For me, it's a funny story. Uh, I just started noticing these patterns in my office like wow i've got one that is do you know and and funny enough that they could cluster around the same technical diagnosis so i could have someone who's depressed who's an overregulator, but not really feeling the sadness part they're feeling what's called lack of interest um so in depression it's either you're tearful and sad you know more days than not for two weeks or longer or you um 
have a lack of thing, interest in things that used to interest you. So mm -hmm. the overregulators would be the lack of interest people and the underregulators would be the more tearful, emotionally expressive people. Um, and I just started to notice not only in my individual clients, but in my couples, how this was coming out. And I dug in and did a little research and it turns out that this is, links right on to a very scientifically validated theory of personality. Uh, continuum from those who are the overregulators on one end to the underregulators on another. And the metaphor is something like this. Uh, imagine a world where that is filled with uh, kingdoms throughout the land, uh, fiefdoms and kingdoms throughout the land. And uh, in those kingdoms, like every good kingdom, there is a castle. In those castles are castle the castle dwellers. These kings and queens do an excellent job of appearing like they've got it all together. They're very busy and active and they've kept their castle walls nice and tidy and shiny. Everything's looking really great from the, from the outside. They're also great at getting people to lend a hand and chip in and executing things and building and developing things. So they're very productive. Mm. But behind those castle walls, something is happening. Every year, those castle walls are getting thicker and thicker to protect themselves from the messiness that's going on outside. And that works pretty darn well, except for there's a couple of things that can go wrong with this castle way of being. As those walls get thicker and thicker, and the assumptions that have been built from behind the castle walls become more and more outdated, castle people can no longer see new information that contradicts their previous beliefs. So they can become kind of rigid in their thinking because they're building assumptions based on old beliefs from when those castle walls went up. Secondly, because they're so good at keeping their own emotions under wraps and out of, out of awareness, they're not very good at relating to or empathizing with people who are feeling strong emotions. The idea is sort of like, I've done such a good job of keeping my stuff under wraps, you should do it the same, keep it to yourself, which can piss other people off. Mm -hmm. uh, so over time, it can work for a long time, and I'll give you actually my, my quintessential castle story. Um, but over time, if then, they're, they take a major hit, a huge stressor, something that they just can't adapt to because of this sort of rigidity, their walls can come crashing down into a full-blown depression or other kind of, of breakdown. Um, I'll tell you just a quick story that my mother-in-law is actually a Holocaust survivor and she is the icon of castledom. Wow. And, and it has worked for her. She's amazing. She's like, she takes no she takes no shit from anyone. Um, so she would love your podcast. She's the queen it. of resilience, right? <laughs> if she's a queen of the classic kind of resilience we think about, however, and, and it's worked for 94 years and 27 grandchildren later and, and she's doing and 94 and completely independent. Mm. Recently, when we had the quarantine, right? She's not allowed to leave her house. She's not allowed to go grocery shopping. She's, and she's feeling a very familiar feeling that she is blocked for 70 years. Mm -hmm. So she's having flashbacks. And this is the, and she keeps saying to me, it hasn't happened in 70 years. It hasn't, and she's mind boggled that she is feeling, and for, we all make fun of Tati, like they call it the grandchildren color dragon lady, because she can be kind of tough. <laughs> but it's just interesting to note, and even my husband said, wow, you were right. Eventually the castle wall will get, will get hit. Um, and the lovely thing is that she's been super lovely about like, okay, let's figure this out. Um, but there's that curiosity you were talking about. So the castle people have real strengths 
except for sometimes we're just not born as a castle person. And sometimes you're born as a sensitive, creative, intuitive, comp you know, passionate kind of a person. And we're trying to be like those castle people, right? And that simply doesn't work. So the, the village people, the, or the villagers in this metaphor, they live out in the, in the community, they dance, they love, they hate, they have strong emotions. One thing is they are authentic right but they get really invalidated when those castle people are like clean that stuff up honey or don't feel that way calm down don't be so upset and that really pisses them off so they can have a lot of ups and downs in their relationships even though they really love being close and connected because they don't tolerate that sort of that separateness that sometimes is required maybe when you're at work or when you're you know interviewing for a job or doing something very professional so you can see how there's these sort of this continuum of personality from, you know, when we get to, of course, when we get too underregulated, that's the classic sort of emotion dysregulation we get in anxiety and depression. And a key part to remember is that when we feel a strong emotion, it's so convincing to us that it's true. We have a very hard time being skillful to regulate it until someone validates that emotional experience. But if you're hanging out with a castle person, they're not going to validate you. You need to validate you so you can get that regulation under control. Is there um, a, a possibility for people to be in the middle, to be somewhat of a villager and somewhat of a, of a castle person? Is that absolutely a little bit of both? What are your thoughts on that? Exactly. That is exactly the goal. So you can have two things kind of show. So I, you know, I give the examples first, you know, at the beginning, I give a, a classic castle, a classic village example. And then you meet Amy, who's my third character in there that is both. So when it goes effectively, you know, and uh, then you are letting down your wall so you can connect, create, listen to maybe the people who work for you to hear their story better. And, you know, today's climate, right? We have this all or none dysregulation going on because there's no valid, because, because our African-American community and people of color need validation for a history that they've experienced that is completely different than white people's history, right? And so um, uh, what goes wrong in if you're both is if you are holding your castle wall up and then it's falling apart and you're dysregulating into um, underregulation. And that can happen sort of in a bipolar situation or even in just, you know, a non-pathological situation where sometimes we overregulate too long and then we underregulate. But Ideally, you're exactly right. We want to be flexibly moving towards leaning in, listening, hearing, validating, sharing, letting a little emotion out, right? Because that, that's we connect in our emotions. That's how we really connect. It's the tone of my voice. It's the excitedness that you hear or the sadness that that's where we really connect. So yes, the ideal place to be is to know when to raise your walls up because that's the effective thing to do and tolerate a little distance and um, lack of connection versus let your walls down and be vulnerable, but connect in your humanity. Absolutely. And I love the metaphor. And I think for anybody who is going to pick up the book later on, I think you'll really be able to understand your emotions better and maybe see in your own life, like, hey, where, where am, am I a little bit more of a castle person? Am I a little bit more of a villager? Am I a little bit of both? And I think that's helpful. It's a very helpful metaphor to help us understand a little bit more about ourselves. But then you bring up this other metaphor that I love. And it's the metaphor that you use, which is of a car. And you use the car metaphor to assess your emotions. Lead us through what this metaphor is and how we can use it to assess our emotions. 
Um, yeah, sure. So metaphors are great. I agree with you. And I use a lot of metaphors because metaphors help us relate something that we're very familiar with, right, with something that's, you know, abstract or, or difficult to understand. So uh, I, just about everyone's familiar with the experience of driving a car, right? So um, I'd like you to imagine that, that that vehicle that you're inside right now, as you hear the sound of my voice, you're behind your own face, you're in a body, right? And that body has taken you from the day you arrived on this planet, right up through elementary school, junior high school, and all of your schooling and, and career to right this moment. So your vehicle is unique. Um, and just like, the, sorry, just like there are many kinds of vehicles, right? Uh, there are many kinds of mind-body vehicles but they also all have the same basic components. So just like you can have SUVs and sports cars and different color cars, there are endless, probably infinite types mm. and colors and kinds of vehicles. There are also endless types and colors of people, but the same basic components exist in both. So in a car, you have your steering wheel, your engine and your tires, right? And in, humans just like although we all have unique experiences and our unique vehicles we all have emotions thoughts and action tendencies so your emotions are like your engine your thoughts are like your uh, are like your steering wheel where you're deciding where you're going to go um, and your action tendencies are like your tires that take you there and these three things are constantly interacting so when you're in your vehicle just like if you're behind the wheel of a car there's stuff that happens on the road of life the facts of a situation, which everyone would agree upon. And those are constantly influencing how you're driving your vehicle, how you're deciding what decisions you're making with your thoughts, where you're going with your, with your feet, and how you're feeling about the situation that compels you to make certain decisions. We sometimes don't necessarily think about what, what, what makes up Ryan Caligiuri, what makes up Dr. Laura Fielding, what makes up mm -hmm. Joe Smith, Jane Smith. And we, what are we but the sum of our thoughts, our feelings, and our behaviors? And I think that's really important for us to understand those three and how they all work together. And this metaphor really goes into detail on that. But maybe talk to us a little bit more about those three pieces, how we think, how we feel, and how we behave, and how those all contribute to essentially our personality. Yeah, indeed. You know, what, one of my pet peeves is when people say, oh, that's just the kind of person he is, or that's just, that's just who, I, who he is or who I am. And usually it's in a derogatory um, way, or at least that's when it really irks me. Um, and we also say that's just his personality. And certainly there are baselines for all of our personalities. I'm clearly kind of a chatty person <laughs> um, and talkative. Um, but also those things because that system is fluid, right? Your vehicle came on the road and then experienced, and I can go into the next metaphor if you like, experienced certain um, experiences that are unique to you versus another person. And all of that is layering upon layer of how something in the environment happened. You interpret it in a certain way. So one of my favorite things to say is, if you wanna guarantee that you stay in therapy your whole life, keep blaming your parents. Um, so, let's, you know, because it disempowers you and that's a whole nother conversation. But you know, the same exact things can happen to two children and the meaning they make out of it, their thinking, right, is gonna create a different emotional 
experience, which is going to compel a different action tendency. So for example, I grew up in a highly critical uh, household. It was just my mom and me and my sister. And my mom, you know, was Russian. She was, you know, escaped, you know, communist era Russia and, you know, had to pull herself up by the bootstraps. She was a lot like my husband's mom. Super critical, very demanding. Um, so my reaction was, okay, if she's going to criticize me, I better jump higher. <laughs> um, un unfortunately, my sister's reaction was, I better take more drugs. Um, oh. and, ne and never fully rebounded from, never rebounded at all from that. Um, mm. So this is also why my history leads me to the belief in the science of how can we take bad situations and make lemons into lemonade. Mm. Um, and that car metaphor highlights that you are constantly adapting and changing. That you're, unlike a real car, your machine is constantly being transformed and, and changed. And unlike a car, um, there's a part of you that can watch that whole play play out. So for example, right now for your listeners, I'd love them to just sort of notice that there's a you there behind your own face that can hear the sound of my voice. And if you're sitting, maybe you feel your bottom in the chair. And there's a you there that's taking all this information in and seeing whatever you see in front of you. That you is the you that can call the shots. That you is bigger than what's happened to you, is bigger than what you're even feeling from moment to moment. And when you can connect to that observer place, that is where we become more than the sum of our biological and psychological parts. We can start to shape the reality we wanna have in this one incarnation that we know about. Maybe we'll get another one, but that's the space that we're trying to connect to. So we can be more aware that, oh, this machine I live in tends to react this way in these kinds of situations. Just like a, if you had a car that had had an accident that kind of pulls to the right when you hit a speed bump. When you know your car, when you know your vehicle really well, you can kind of stop and say, oh, okay, I'm having a slightly heightened reaction or a very heightened reaction. Um, this tends to, this is one of those situations that tends to show up a lot. And when that's the case, now I'm cued to slow down and use some of the skills that you read in chapters eight, nine, and 10. <laughs> and I do want to kind of get into some of those skills because the very tactical piece of the book that I truly love, and we talk about something that you and I were talking about earlier, it's a word that gets overused a lot and people don't truly understand what it means. And even myself still learning what it means this idea of practicing mindfulness. And you say that yes. practicing mindfulness can help you respond thoughtfully and not automatically. And I love that distinction. So can you tell us a little bit more about how we can use mindfulness? Indeed. So, you know, most people, uh, or if you haven't heard of mindfulness, um, you know, it's very popular with everyone, these, with everything from sports stars to celebrities, to gurus, to psychologists. So mindfulness, the technical definition is, you know, paying attention on purpose to all the components of your current experience without judgment. So what does that mean in practice? So a lot of people get there vis-a-vis -vis meditation. That's the most studied um, and uh, well-described way to become mindful. But at the end of the day, do we really want to get good at sitting on a cushion for 45 minutes a day? I don't. <laughs> um, so what I've tried to do with the book, which is based actually on my research, um, is distill the essential elements out of mindfulness. 
right? So, um, but the way that I describe how to do it in the book is I actually teach you how to observe your vehicle in process by completing this form called, of course, the dashboard form. So I teach people mindfulness basically on a piece of paper. So there are a lot of meditative exercises in my book because again, that is, mindfulness is a felt sense. You can say, oh, be mindful. But what does that mean? It's, it's almost like I can tell you what it feels like to jump in a pool or a more fun examples. I could tell you what it feels like to have an orgasm, but you're not going to know until you have one. So <laughs> you need to practice <laughs> and know that you are an evolving being that through practice and habitual behaviors will develop this ability. If you feel like, oh no, I could never um, be spontaneous or I could never uh, be able to you know, keep my stuff together at a cocktail party or whatever you say, fill in the blank. I could never do that. Well, you're not going to know until you start practicing. And mindfulness is a way to start practicing. First, the first thing is to notice where you're becoming unmindful. And that's actually what the dashboard form helps with. I have people complete this form and I'll tell you what's on it. Whenever a couple of situations happen, either you've dysregulated, you've lost your, your stuff, <laughs> you yelled at your parents or your boyfriend, or um, you just, or you maybe capitulated on uh, some, maybe you're trying to be sober and you drank. If you've done that thing, so you either have a target behavior or you um, felt like you had an over-emotive over or third, you're avoiding doing something because you're afraid you're going to have that emotional experience, you complete the form. The form has five things on it and it's related to your mind-body vehicle. So one is, what are the facts? What are the things in your life or on the road that everyone would agree upon is ha are happening in that moment that you got triggered? So you wanna make sure that you've got the who, what, and where, not the why. Facts mm. are things that everyone agrees upon. Your ideas and thoughts and interpretations of the facts oh, that's so unfair, it shouldn't be happening, that really sucks, and they're a jerk, and they're trying to be hurtful or being passive-aggressive, all that, that's thinking. And so the very first thing you want to get good at is knowing the difference between facts and thinking, because those two get very sticky. You know, we're, our mind-body vehicles have evolved to make a very um, smooth interface between reality and what we're experiencing, so we're not sort of watching the whole process play out. Mindfulness is stepping back and slowing down, going, wait a second. I'm going to put each piece in a box and then I can know how to work more skillfully with each piece rather than trying to use the wrong skill and the wrong tool for the wrong piece. Does that make sense? Absolutely. So, so the dashboard is facts of the situation. What are your thoughts or interpretations? Then what's the emotion word? A lot of people aren't so good at finding the right or the emotion, having an emotional vocabulary, sad, angry, distressed, um, uh, frustrated, ashamed, you know, you want to get good at building your emotion vocabulary because very cool, tons of research shows that when you can label, you find the, the just right word for your emotion, it actually activates your orbital prefrontal cortex to downregulate your amygdala, which is a neuroscience way of saying it helps you start regulating. Just mm -hmm. find that emotion word. Uh, the next box is what am I feeling in my body? What am I, are my shoulders tensing? Am I, is my heart racing? Am I sweating? Just paying attention to your body not only is honoring your experience, but also starts to regulate you because minds time travel, bodies don't. And when you pay attention to your body, you're sort of grounding yourself a little bit. 
last but not least, very importantly, is what is my action tendency? Like, what am I wanting to do? Am I wanting to reach for a cigarette, a, you know, a, a shot of vodka? Am I wanting to yell at that person? Because usually it's in the behavior that you're going to get in trouble. So you want to know what is your action impulse when you get triggered. So that's, that's the dashboard. And it's my way of mixing something called a functional analysis in, in behavioral therapy with, uh, with being mindful because you're getting really clear what are all the components that are contributing to this freakout that I'm having right now? Or if you're a castle person, the shutdown that, mm. that I'm having right now, because then, and I, we can go into that, then you can start to lean into those experiences and see which ones are going to use for motivation for you castle people to drive you towards, wait a minute, if I'm getting upset about this, I obviously care about it, it must be linked to my purpose and my values somehow. So for castle people, you want to lean into it so you can start to get more connected to yourself so you can connect to the human experience and your fellow humans and the people you care about. And for village people, you want to lean in there so you can go, oh, no wonder I'm getting upset because I'm getting caught up on how unfair this is. The thought unfair is rage, right? And so when you kind of get to know those, what I call the relationship between events, mindfulness ultimately is getting really clear at connecting to that observer part of you and looking at the relationship between events so that you can then say, okay, I'm going to, and I can walk you through what the steps are for, for being skillful with each box there so you can always stay consistent towards your goals and values mm. there's so much meat. a lot <laughs> but you've done a really good job with your system in terms of making it a little bit easier to understand and as you said you can discuss mindfulness but it's something you have to practice something you have to get good at yeah. just as i say when you're trying to build the body that you want whether you're trying to lose weight put on muscle, mm -hmm. whatever you're trying to do, it takes time, it takes effort, it takes self-discipline to go ahead and do that. And it, it, it just is a dedication and through discipline, you will get there. But it definitely- And I'd like to- Go ahead. Yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah, I'd like to say that people tend to come to me and say, just teach me skills to regulate my emotions. And that is the end result. But we can't really get anywhere without a good self-assessment. You know, if you go to a therapist and they don't give you any um, measures or they don't ask you any questions. They just like sort of let you start talking, but they don't really guide you to see really what's going on. Any, any, at least clinical psychologist that's worth their salt will do a, an evaluation, right? What are your symptoms? What are you feeling? Like wh what's triggering those feelings? How long has this been going on? Right. And so you need to do that. So what I try to teach people how to do that a little bit for themselves because not therapy isn't as widely available as we'd like it to be. You know, when I was young, I didn't even know anything about therapy. So I tried to figure it out myself. So the mindfulness piece is your self-assessment. Mm -hmm. It's getting honest with yourself. And this is the big important piece, non-judgmentally and compassionately getting familiar with yourself so that then you can know the skills to apply to you particularly because you're a unique person, right? The skills that are for this person may not be the skill you need. You might need the other kind of skills. I love that you brought that up and I love that you, you made time to, to interject with that because I do think that is important is that you do have to assess where you're at. It's, if you take it from the perspective of, of, of a business, you don't just go hire a consultant to come in and create innovation. No, you hire somebody to come in and do a current state analysis. And this is to all you people out there in, in, in the business world. You don't just come in and start implementing new change. No, you don't do that. You come in and you're, you understand current state. Where are we at? Okay, this is future state. Now let's address the gap in the middle. How often 
often do we do that with our own minds, with our own emotions, with our own thoughts? Do we do that on a regular basis? And that's what you're really trying to drive us to do in this book. Yeah. 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 It's, it's not, it's not really natural, right? It feels a little unnatural. And that's why I put it in those boxes. If you just get good at filling out those boxes, (laughs) <laughs> that's already you start to see and so the goal of the book and the goal of the, the process here is to know yourself so well that you can kind of go like oh I'm doing my thing right. <laughs> I think I got a passenger going here oh we didn't talk about passengers <laughs> they're, kind <of> important. <laughs> they're kind of important and everyone loves the passenger metaphor so in that mind-body vehicle that you've been driving your whole life up until this very moment all of those experiences, the good days, the bad days, the scary days, the favorite days, you collect those experiences as passengers that have gotten onto your, onto your vehicle. And so the, the happy days sort of may inspire you and direct you to do great things with your life. But those scary ones, those, that, those really difficult memories maybe related to being bullied as a kid or if you had a, an unhappy childhood in your home or you were discriminated against those feelings so for me i was right my my mom called me stupid a lot and then i dropped out of high school so being stupid was like unacceptable Mm -hmm. (laughs) to ever feel stupid and i still will get triggered if i don't know a question right i'll I'll start to beat myself up so what did i do i went to school for 10 years to prove everyone that i wasn't stupid um but what happens with those scary passengers is it's like we get a deal going with them you stay at the back of the vehicle and you stay quiet i'll go wherever you want And so our life becomes driven by avoiding and controlling the feelings and thoughts and emotions related to those passengers, rather than where we as a conscious observer of our experience want our life to go. So the really important part of the self-evaluation is to start getting a sense of who are your passengers? What are are the things that make you a little bit more sensitive? And I describe how that comes out in different characters from village to uh, castle to somewhere in between. Um, in the book, but you want to know for you, because you don't care about being emotionally regulated generally, you care about your life, you care about your past history, and you want to get familiar at like, how is this getting in the way of my relationships, of getting that promotion I want, of getting the body I want, what is it I'm not willing to feel, and a lot of times it's a, you know, the big, darkest, ugliest passenger, of course, is shame, everyone hates shame, it's like, you know, all the other Sometimes there's a whole part of, we have primary emotions and secondary emotions, but shame is usually back there driving a lot of this. So at the end of the day, we want to get really familiar with what are those patterns that we find in our dashboard. When you collect a bunch of those uh, dashboard forms, you'll get a pattern that will kind of give you a sense of who those passengers are and what you're doing, or not consciously, but reactively to avoid control suppress. It could be you're, if you're a castle person, you could be overworking, you could be going to the gym too often, you could be just that perfectionism kind of thing. Or you could be like, no, I'm not going to try because I should be accepted for who I am. And that's not effective either, right? So we need to find what we're doing that's not work. It's protecting us and it's it's helping us with our quote self-esteem, but it's not really helping us get where we want to go. That is Mastering Adulthood. Go beyond adulting to become an emotional grown-up. Uh, for anybody who wants to get out there and follow you along, see what else you're doing, how can they connect with you? Oh, great. Um, yes. So um, you can sign up for my weekly or my bi-weekly skill weekly newsletter at mindful-mastery.com or follow me at Mindful Mastery on Instagram or Facebook. And uh, I have some YouTube videos that have been coming up where I talk to colleagues about current events 
uh, during our pandemic. Of course. And if you're more, if you're interested in learning more about uh, Dr. Laura Feeling, then definitely go out there and see her, her research, what she's done. And this book is um, an amazing book. Absolutely loved it. And uh, Dr. Laura, it was a pleasure having you on the show today. Thank you. It was a pleasure being here. Right, there we have it. That is Mastering Adulthood. Go beyond adulting to become an emotional grown-up. I'm a good friend, Dr. Lara Fielding. She's a great guest, and I cannot wait to get her back on the show. As I said in the very opening of the show, I'm going to look to get her back on either on the capacity of Create Your Eight, where it's her and I can have a discussion, or I'll bring her on. We can talk with the boys on Brain Jiu-Jitsu. Either one, I'm going to get her back on the show because she's just a wealth of knowledge, and I think she has a lot that she can share to help all of you help you build your resilience, help you become a beacon of resilience, optimism, and hope. Again, if you are interested in getting the summary from this, I know you all ask me still, hey, Ryan, why don't you do the mind maps anymore like you used to do when you first started the show? You just don't have time to do it anymore. It takes up so much time. So if you want the golden nuggets, if you want the mind maps, you got to go to my friends at getabstract.com. Getabstract.com, they're a sponsor of the Cut the Crap Show, and you can go and get a three-day free trial. That's getab, G-E-T-A-B dot L-I slash R-R-X. Getab.li slash RRX. You get your three-day free trial. You can download the summary for Mastering Adulthood and so many more summaries, about 20,000 summaries, videos, audios, books, whatever. Just a wealth of information, and I'm going to be pulling a lot of different books from Get Abstract. So you want those summaries? Again, that's getab.li slash RRX. Also, if you're interested in working with yours truly, with myself, your organizational neuroresilience specialist, then please go to ryankellajury.com or createyour8.com. It all goes to the same website. And on there, you can see the kind of programs that I offer, speaking engagements. And if you believe that I might be a good fit for your team, then please reach out to me. Ask me some questions. I'm not going to give you the hard sell. I'm not going to push you. That's not my style. You either want it or you don't want it. If you want it, I'll make sure that I'm putting the best package in front of you that makes the best sense for you and your team. Again, go to ryancalajuri.com, createyour8.com, whatever you choose. Go through the website. If you have any questions, just contact me through the form on the website, and I'd be happy to sit down and have a conversation with you. All right, everybody. Again, thank you so much for tuning in again this week and giving me your time and your attention. That means a tremendous amount to me because I know you could go anywhere. And so I very much appreciate you spending time with me. So until next week, I will see you next week when I have a brand new book, brand new golden nuggets. And I'll be here bringing the energy as I always do and I enjoy doing it. Have yourselves an amazing, productive, inspired week, everybody. Take care.